you know, it's all well and good to be a great rider, but if you don't have a great program, then you just, you know, that hinders your ability to be able to ride. Um, and I think, you know, beyond that, I think, uh, you know, a lot of people, they're all about, you know, they have this idea that, you know, the better you are in the competition ring or the whether you, you know, the fact that you win, that makes you a good horseman by, you know, translation, um, which is just not factually correct. Welcome to Practical Horseman's podcast, featuring conversations with respected riders, industry leaders, and horse care experts. The show, which runs every other Friday, is co-hosted by Practical Horseman editors, and our goal is to inform, educate, and inspire. I'm Sandra Olenek, and this week's episode is with Grand Prix show jumper Carl Cook. Most recently, Carl won the 100,000 Horse Taxi Grand Prix in Thermal, California, on March 8th with his longtime partner, the 13-year-old Holsteiner gelding, Kailu 24. Also in the class, Carl placed third with the 11-year-old Belgian warmblood, Urcos 4. In addition, Carl recently finished in the top spot in the Longines FEI Jumping World Cup North American Western Sub-League after winning the Sacramento Qualifier last fall with Kailu. The pair finished second in the New York qualifier and had top 10 placings in the Del Mar and Wellington qualifiers as well. Carl and I spoke in Wellington in February, where he had traveled from his home base, Pomponio Ranch, in Southern California. During our conversation, Carl spoke about his dedication to horsemanship and his belief that understanding and tending to his horse's physical well-being is critical to effective communication between horse and rider. This concept is something he has learned, in part, from Eric Neve, the 1990 World Equestrian Games team and individual gold medalist, who moved from his native France in 2013 to become Carl's coach. Another valuable member of the Pomponio team is French international veterinarian Philippe Benoit. The team is mixing old-fashioned horsemanship with looking outside the box for new ways to improve their horse-centric methods. During our chat, Carl talks about what makes a good horseman, which for him has involved establishing a program dedicated to keeping his horses happy and healthy. The program aims to prevent injuries by focusing on every detail of the horse's care and management, including collecting and analyzing data about each horse from a variety of sources. Carl also talks about how the Pomponio team is videotaping horses and combining that with new software to evaluate how a horse moves, again with the aim of understanding and detecting changes in the horse's way of going that could indicate the very beginning of a health issue. You can read more about this at practicalhorsemanmag.com in an article with Carl and Eric titled Classic Meets Cutting Edge. Carl's pride in his program was evident when I asked him what the highlight of his career has been so far. He said it was his consistent partnership with his World Cup horse, Tembla, who never had an injury and retired at the end of 2018, happy and healthy. Now, let's jump right into the conversation with Carl, where he starts by talking about what he has learned from Eric. You know, of course, there's, you know, all the riding stuff, but I think most importantly, I think it's all the stuff that gets you to where you can ride. Um, it doesn't matter how good you can ride if, you know, 
your horse is uh, sick or not sound or um, not the right fit for you or I think the whole program itself and how important all that is is probably the, the best thing. Um, in, the, in an article that you and Eric had done for Practical Horsemen, you talked about um, horsemanship and how um, you know, he's such a horseman. Um, can you speak a little bit about that? Yeah, I mean, you know, I think like we explained there, um, you know, it's all well and good to be a great rider, but if you don't have a great program, then you just, you know, that hinders your ability to be able to ride. Um, and I think, you know, beyond that, I think, uh, you know, a lot of people, they're all about, you know, they have this idea that, you know, the better you are in the competition ring or the, whether you, you know, the fact that you win, that makes you a good horseman by, you know, translation, um, which is just not factually correct. I mean, it also depends on how you define horsemen, but, uh, you know, for Eric and, and for me, those are not... It's not a linear comparison. You can be a terrible horseman and win a class. Um, and I think learning, you know, horsemanship and the value of it and the importance of it and, you know, a lot of it is just the simplicity of it. People think it's hard or technical or complicated, and it's really not. Um, it's disciplined in its simplicity, and people like to think that it's complicated because it simplifies how they feel about themselves, not being disciplined. Um, but it's really not complicated. It's just you have to be disciplined. Can you talk about, and this might lead into it, your training philosophy, your overall training philosophy? No, I mean, I think a lot of it comes from Eric, um, and a lot of it comes from reading as well. I think the most important thing is to work with your horse. Um, and, you know, so easy to focus on. Oh, I need to get the teach the horse how to, uh, how to turn right or to turn left, do lead changes, collect, jump better. You know anything and everything. Um, but you know it's not often talked about how you. It's most important to understand for the horse and you to understand one another's minds. Because then the rest of it happens. Instead of thinking it purely mechanically or biomechanically, if you think about it mentally, and you're very good at that, then biomechanically it happens. Um, but that requires people to be a lot more self-effacing and conscious of their own impact on the situation. Um, and it's hard for a lot of people to be that level of self-reflective. Um, to do it well. It's easier to, you know, think of it purely mechanically, which I love mechanics and I love, you know, I love all that stuff I think is important, but I think the brain is the most important brain of the rider and of the horse. Leading into that, I guess, what do you think makes a good horseman? Understanding. Mm -hmm. um, you know, the horse doesn't know or care who you are, regardless of what you think, what they care about is how you treat them um, and just because a horse accepts something doesn't mean it's right um, and I think working with the horse in a healthy manner that keeps the horse 
happy and healthy for an extended period of time is 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 a good horseman, not someone who can peak a horse to something amazing and then the horse just disappears. Um, you know, I think those peaks and valleys are a sign of not a good horseman, not a sign of a good one. Oh, he's so good because he can peak this horse. No, no. He's bad because he peaks the horse. The horse should be able to just, you, you, the, the program and the horseman should be able to do it with the horse so that it doesn't harm the horse. And that means that there's no big valleys after the peaks. So uh, in 2013, you brought French international veterinarian Philippe Benoit. Mm -hmm. um, can you talk about his role in your program? Well, I think it's, to me, it makes sense. Um, a lot of people, it doesn't. Uh, you, you know, they oh, use an analogy. A lot of people engage with their vets like the vet is a, a fireman. There's a problem. You need a firefighter, firefighter to come put out the fire. So then you can just keep plugging along the way that you were. Um, but if you don't see the issue as a problem with the horse, it's a problem with your program, then you approach it differently. And bringing him on is was just like bringing on a trainer. Um, because, you know, the program is what keeps the horses happy and healthy and, and consistent. Um, and so we, we had the goal of, you know, everyone has things of uh, the horse's maintenance. And I said, well, I don't really like that. That doesn't sound good to me. I don't like that you just assume that they need something whether you know they actually do or they don't. So we brought him in with a different structure so that we could do basically everything preventatively. We could track everything we do, we can review everything we did, and we can figure out how to improve our programs and our processes to limit issues, uh, improve efficiency, and make the horses happier and healthier for longer periods of time. Um, and it, it works. Mm -hmm. um, but, you know, that comes from you wanting a different approach. And then you actually doing it. Carrying um, it out. You know, and caring enough to actually do it, you know. Mm -hmm. Just because you're taught one way growing up doesn't mean it has to be that way. Mm -hmm. um, yeah. What kind of preventative things do you do regularly? Depends on the horse. Depends on, um, you know, we know the horses so well um, because we're able to keep them going consistently for long periods of time instead of, you know, going, 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 injury, recovery, going, 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 injury, recovery. Instead of that mode, you, you know, they, they stay happy and healthy for longer periods of time. So you know them better. So you're not, you know, if you are very good with having them properly shod, um, if you have really good shoeing that's appropriate for the horse and you have a saddle that fits and you pay attention to the top line, you don't have to look at the legs. You basically can ignore the fact that legs exist um, because an injury in the leg is a symptom of something somewhere else. It's mm -hmm. not, it's not, you know, if you have an injured suspensory, that's not a fault in the suspensory. That's compensation based injury due to something else so if you fix the suspensory but not the cause then hey guess what it happens again so we work almost exclusively on the top line of the horses 
Um, we change how we fly it when we need to. We, um, you know, we can be very precise and sensitive because we built the system to accommodate for that, you know. Um, and we've, you know, pushed ourselves to figure out how we can find things earlier and earlier and earlier. Um, before it's an injury, before it's a stiffness, before it's, you, you know, it causes an issue, I want to know it and I want to fix it, so then it's not an issue. Um, and that's what, you know, that's what having Eric and Philippe together has really um, been able, we've been able to pull off, because it's all all three of us working together because it you know it take takes a lot of work you know you have to you have to discipline yourself to be sensitive and not just say oh that's just the way my horse moves how about so you know can you talk a little bit about how you track and analyze all the data collected on your horses because that it sounds like you're really focusing in on the details devils in the details so you have to you have to record it so you know we every time Leap looks at a horse, he does full write-ups um, on the horses, what he saw, what he felt, what he concluded, um, and what, most of the time it's therapies that we prescribe, you know, um, therapeutic ultrasound, um, a muscle stimulation machine, or massage, stretching, you know, a bunch of stuff like that. Um, and so we keep track of all the, all those, if we, if we use, um, a more medical, or if we use an injection treatment, we have our own PRP and IRAP set up at our farm. So we do it all fresh, live, at the farm. Um, and and then we keep track of what we've done, and we put it into, into tables of dates and horses over time we track, so we can really get an idea of what's going on. Um, we also, obviously we have all of our logs of the images. We never do any treatment or anything like that without images to back up our thoughts. You know, some some vets, which I vehemently disagree with, they will do treatments or prescribe things with no imaging to back it up. Um, and it's not so much because they necessarily need it, but if you have an image of a structure and you think that, and you say that structure is is in need of some healing, how do you know when it's healed if you don't have the images of what it looked before. Now sure the horse can be sounder, but it's important to have more information. You know, the more information you have, the better. Um, and so everything's tables, graphs, um, you know, paper, mm -hmm. um, and people that actually care to look at them, and then at the end of the year review them. Or if something's feeling weird, you can look back what has been going on? What have we seen? Have we seen glimmers of this issue before, but not really known it was a thing? Um, kind of looking for patterns. Mm -hmm. and, then, and then make changes. So along with your team, you began researching in 2016 whether you could evaluate jumping form to predict a young horse's capabilities and to see if you could analyze changes uh, in, from, and their causes by affixing sensors to several points on the horse. Uh, could you talk about what gave you this idea and how it works? So that was a little bit of a myth because people saw videos that I posted of what we were doing. Um, now that is 
more or less sort of the end goal where we're trying to go. But right now we're just trying to accurately and repeatedly, repeatedly be able to measure how a horse is moving, whether they're trotting or jumping. And it needs to be repeatable and it needs to be easy to do. Because if it's not repeatable, you can't do a pre and a post. Um, and it needs to be easy to do because if it's too hard, you won't do it. Um, and, you know, even me who really likes to push this, you know, I have, there's limits. So um, we've been working uh, with some researchers to kind of, the technology is out there. We're, mm -hmm. There's nothing we are inventing, absolutely nothing. Um, we're just using existing technology with new software to look at what we want to look at. Um, I've been waiting because the software wasn't there yet. You know, you, it wasn't quick enough to be actionable. If you're jogging your horse and you see something, or if you jog them, you want to see the result quickly. You don't want to wait two days and have someone have to turn through a computer to get you to see it, and you need to be able to visualize what the sensors are sensing because, you know, they just give you differences in voltage. What does the differences in voltage mean? And how can you visualize it in a way where it's an act, it can cause an actionable response from you, the horse owner, trainer, manager, vet? Um, so that's been the slowdown, but it'll, we're, gonna, we're starting testing here in a couple of weeks. So I'm excited for that. Yeah. And are you hoping, you know, like say jogging your horse to, to detect things in his movement? Of course. Yeah. Mm -hmm. I mean, um, I want to know things, back to what we said earlier, I want to know things before they happen. So we kind of, we call it subclinical lamenesses. So before the horse is lame, they might be moving a little differently. Or let's say a horse, you know, and for me in extreme sense, let's say a horse has an injury. Okay, well let's, let's jog the horse, let's record how the horse is moving. Let's get the ultrasound or x-rays or MRIs or whatever images and then we'll pick our treatment. And then as the horse is, quote, recovering, let's jog it through again and again and track to see what is changing, what is improving. Is it improving? How fast is it improving? Was the treatment good? Uh, or could it have been better? When you get back to doing your, um, your rehab, could you go faster? Could you, maybe you're going too fast. And you don't know unless you measure. It's a lot like, uh, you know, if you stand on a scale once, great, you, you see how heavy you are. But if you stand on a scale consistently, you can start tracking how your weight is going up or going down, and you can then reflect on, is it because I'm working out more, eating more, I've been really stressed, um, I've been sitting more because of this, where, you know, you can right. put pieces of the puzzle together, um, and that's what I'm trying to do. Moving on to, to horses, who are some of the important or influential horses in your life? They're all influential. Oh, good answer. <laughs> um, yeah, they're all influential. I think uh, you all learn, you learn things from every single horse. Some because of circumstance you learn more from or just because you have them for longer, but they're all important. What are some of the lessons you've learned from some of them? Can you give examples or... I think horses show you who you really are as a person. And so it's important that you, you like who you are. And not just who you think you are, who you actually are. Your actions, 
you know, are, are basically who you are. You, all we are are words and actions. And so you interact with a horse not with words, so it's your actions. Um, and so if you get frustrated easily, the horse is going to tell you. Or the circumstance is going to come about and you're going to get frustrated. But that's an indicator and that's something that you can work on. You know, if you actually think about it, you actually say, look, you know, I, this horse is making me frustrated. Or let me reword that. I get frustrated when the horse isn't doing what I think I'm telling it to do. You know, again, the horse doesn't care who you are. The horse doesn't know how much money you spent on it. The horse doesn't know your hopes and dreams for what you feel the horse should do for you. It doesn't know or care or ever will. Um, some horses might have fun jumping, but that doesn't mean they're like, they have that same, you know, anthropomorphic drive that, that we have. Um, but I think they show you who you are. You know, do you get frustrated easily? Do you get emotional? Um, uh, when you get nervous, what happens? Um, and how do, does your feelings and your emotions impact the horse? Um, and I think that's maybe for me what, you know, they kind of shine a light into places that we kind of block off in our brains. Can you talk about uh, a little bit about the breeding program at your farm and what your goals are? Um, you know, I think it's always, you know, you always, I've always had this dream of like if I ride a stallion, you know, years down the road, people would say, oh, this horse is a good horse because it's by such or such horse. And then they might not know that I ever rode the horse, but it'd be kind of cool that like people want, you know, <laughs> a baby from a horse that you rode. Um, and then, you know, my mom, you know, we retire all of our horses ourselves. We don't send them away because we have the ability to and we can give them, uh, and we do give them a great life. And, you know, after having stallions and mares, you know, it just kind of started. And my mom really enjoys her babies. Um, and, you know, she obviously wants to breed a really good horse and then see a horse that she bred and she saw from a, from a foal all the way up to competing in the ring. You know, and um, I think the right amount of work with young horses helps develop a person as a rider. Um, I think if you're, if you're trying to be a top show jumping rider, if you spend too much time riding young horses, it might not be the best thing. But I think there's, there is a right amount where you learn things because the young horses operate differently. And I think you can learn a lot from that um, that can help you with the older horses. Again, with the right level of moderation, but I think you can learn a lot. Um, and are you competing any of the homebreds? Not, uh, we have one, one six-year-old, but um, I think we'll, I think we'll get the next, each year we kind of start working with the next round somewhere in the summer. Um, you know, we wait a little bit because A, we travel, and B, that's not really useful for us to work with four or five-year-olds. You know, there are people that are better at that than I am. Mm -hmm. um, and there's, you know, there's always safety concerns and whatnot. So, it, you know, it's not valuable for me to spend a lot of time on a four-year-old to possibly, you know, have a fall because you're riding a four-year-old and then not be able to do the other one. So, you know, we have a good network of people we work with that help with the different stages and the different mm -hmm. horses because not, you know, not every horse is a 140 horse and not every horse can be an amateur horse. And so you, you have to have a, I mean, maybe by necessity you build a network of uh, 
of people you work with. Mm -hmm. Is it your ideal or maybe goal to have a homebred that you, you and your team sure. bring up to sure. Grand Prix sure. level? And I mean, that's the Prix? ideal, uh -huh. um, and you know, you do your best to get there. Yeah. Um, moving on to competing and riding, uh, what do you consider the highlights of your career so far? You know, we retired a mare of mine at the end of 2018, and I was really, you know, I love the mare, and you know, we, I learned a lot with her, um, but what I was really proud of is we, we talked about earlier, that consistent output. She never had an injury, she never had, you know, she was always consistent, and we were able to work together consistently. Um, and she retired when it was right, and she's, you know, happy and healthy, not, you know, having major latent issues because we pushed her way too far. And I think I'm, you know, I'm very proud of that. Mm -hmm. um, Is that Tumblr? Mm -hmm. Okay. Yeah. Now she lives in a paddock with uh, mini ponies. Oh. <laughs> Is that, is she happy? Yeah. <laughs> that must make a great picture. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Do you have any routines before competition? I sleep a lot before I ride. Um, outside of that, not really. Do you get nervous? I mean, I forget who told me a long time ago. I said, if you don't get any feeling in your stomach, quit. Or when you don't get any feeling in your stomach, quit. Um, so, of course, there is, but you learn how to deal with it. You know, I don't get cripplingly nervous and you know, stay relaxed, but, you know, you, you have to get excited to show. You have to... Um, I've always done better when there are higher ramifications for failure because you can't fail then. So you, you know, it, you have to focus more and that like need to focus because if you don't, you flip over, I guess for me it helps. Do, do you do anything to like handle nerves or you, they no. don't get to that point where you have to? No, you learn. I learned early on and it's never been a major issue for me. But you know, I, for me, it goes back to you know, the program that you work with. If you're cripplingly nervous because you don't know what's going to happen, then maybe we need to work on you feeling more consistent. Yeah, maybe, maybe we need to work on you knowing that you're capable and knowing that, you know, knowing it, not just like say, hey, you've done this before, you can do it. Like, no, like actually really understanding the foundations and the frameworks and everything that you've put into place to jump what you want to jump so you don't feel cripplingly nervous. Um, and con confidence in your program. And yeah, and then what you can do and and even if you you always have pangs of doubt, but it's, it needs to stay at pangs and not at, you know, where you get so nervous you can't ride well and then you don't ride well and then you're nervous in the future about not riding well. <laughs> so it's a, you know, it's a self-perpetuating process that, you know, you need to avoid. Right. How do you, how do you stay mentally focused? Distraction. Oh, really? Okay. Um, for me, I, I need to have a, 
a lot of things rolling around in the brain. Um, like, I'll walk the courses, and then I'll come outside and I'll forget, you know, I won't think about the course. Um, and I don't like watching a lot of people. Um, and then before, when I warm up, I might go over the course a couple times, but not a lot. Um, because I, the more times I go over the course, the more my brain writes script for the course. Mm -hmm. And then that ends up distracting me from what I walked in person. So then I can't be as accurate as I would have been. It's kind of like coming up with a plan, a game plan, and sticking with it as opposed yeah. to... Instead of continuing to think about it, continuing to think about it, continuing to think about it. You know, I, I think you need in your brain only what's important and not, oh, well, possibly maybe this, or, oh, I mean, I saw this person do that, or the, you know, it, it needs to stay only what is required. Um, and however you can do that, is important, you know, it might not be my way, but I think you need only what's important, um, objectively important, not subjectively. Mm -hmm. So, you know, if, if you're not watching writers, I guess when like a class is going on, what do you do to sort of stay? I go to the warm-up ring, watch people warm up, I take a nap. What do you think makes you a strong competitor? I want to win, and I like beating people. <laughs> But it seems like you've put a really strong program in place. Well, yeah, to I mean, you, you, that. you can, yeah, and I think the methods of how you do that's important. And I think it says a lot about the people. You know, if you look at how they go about, you know, if you're competing, then you have to be competitive. You know, well, why would you want to compete if you're not competitive? That doesn't, doesn't make sense. So I think how you go about being competitive says a lot about you as a person and what you care about. Is what you care about just being competitive, or is what you care about being competitive while doing a better job than anyone else that is safer, healthier for the horses, and makes your program with the horses as consistent as possible at a high level? I might compete against some horses, and I might, they might beat me, but two seasons later, I'm still going with my horse, and nice. their horse isn't going anymore. So while they might have beaten me on that day, that horse and me are still competing two, three, four, five, six years later, where they're on multiple rounds of horses by that point. So, mm -hmm. you know, me and that horse have taught each other much more than them. We have won more money together than them. Um, and when I go to sleep at night, I'm not thinking about when's the next time the, my horse is going to break and I need to get another one. You know, you can rest easy at night, which to me is important. Great. Well, thank you very much. I really thank appreciate you. it. Yeah. Thanks so much for listening to this week's episode. Join us again in two weeks. Upcoming conversations are with the 18-year-old show jumping star, Brian Mogri, international jumper, Andrew Wells, and hunter rider, Hannah Esop. You can subscribe to this podcast on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts. While you are there, please rate and review the show. I'm Sandra Olenek, and you've been listening to the Practical Horseman Podcast. <laughs>